Let's go ahead and pray and start our study today. Our study today is called Helmets, Farmers, and Mowers. And we'll find out why here in just a little while. Let's pray. Father, we, we walk into your presence and we're so um, humbled to be in your presence, Father, because we can't uh, come in in our own righteousness. We have to be clothed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus and clothed with his righteousness. And by faith, Lord, we do believe that he died on the cross for our sin, and so we can enter your presence, Father, and make requests and, and be heard uh, as you are our Father and we are your children. And Lord, I pray that your word to us today would be powerful, would be specific, it would search our hearts and sift them, and Lord, make us a, a redeemed people and a righteous people by your word. I pray that we would be equipped to ward off the attacks of the enemy uh, as we continue looking at the armor of the Lord. Uh, God, we need you so much. We need it to be your spirit that does the teaching. This is no book. This is no conversation with men. This is the God of the universe has something to say to us. And, and, and pertaining to our life and our situations today. And God, we pray a great, a great, great move of your spirit today. We ask for it in the name of Jesus because, Lord, you proved your willingness to work in our lives by sending Jesus and by sending your Holy Spirit when Jesus went to heaven. So, Lord, we wait upon you. We ask again that you would fill us with that Holy Spirit and teach us through your word bring power to these words. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 today, and it says in the first half of it, we're going to focus in like a magnifying glass on this scripture, and it says, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. So obviously we have been talking about the armor, and we've been talking about the, you know, we started with the, um, what's the first one? The belt, that's right, hey, you did good job. The belt of truth, and it held everything together. And we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, and we talked about the, the boots of the preparation of the gospel peace. And then last week we talked about the shield of faith, and we've seen all those. We're going to review that a little bit more coming up here. But today we see the helmet of salvation. And your helmet protects your brain. We all know that guy that's just had one too many concussions. And uh, Wes Welker, we pray for you, so. All right. But the reason why you wear a helmet is to protect your brain, right? And the brain is an amazing thing. I, I did some studying on what the brain is this week. And did you know that new, actual new physical connections are formed every time you make a memory? And that when you get drunk and you black out, you're really not forgetting things. That when you're drunk, the alcohol has prevented your brain from being able to form memories. And that's why you don't remember the things you do when you're drunk. I don't know, but I guess that's what happens. Uh, your brain produces enough electricity to power a light bulb, a 25-watt light bulb. I found that amazing. Uh, it's scientifically proven that even a small dose of power or authority uh, changes how a person's brain operates, and it diminishes empathy or your, your ability to feel. So I'm, I'm learning all these things about brains, and I'm understanding why God wants us to be able to protect. Uh, the guy, this is funny, the guy who prepared Einstein's body for embalming or for autopsy, he stole his brain. 
and he kept it in a jar for 20 years. He's just on his desk. I just like, hey, what's that? That's Einstein's brain. Why is it an insult when you call someone Einstein? Because you're not calling him smart. It's like, way to go, Einstein. Anyway. Um, do you know dieting, if you're into dieting and you really like eat dieting all the time and you're not eating, it can force your brain to eat itself? Didn't know that. I learned that information travels in your brain faster than 260 miles per hour. It's faster in some people, slower in others. I learned that you have 100,000 miles of axons in your brain. I don't know how to pronounce that, but I think that's right. Uh, that, that could wrap around the earth four times in your brain. It's pretty cool. And as experts estimate that over a course of a lifetime, modern human brains will retain up to one quadrillion pieces of information. And there's more than 100,000 chemical reactions happening in your brain every second. 100,000 things going on, chemical reactions every second. And every day you have about 70,000 unique and individual thoughts. That's a lot of stuff going on in your brain. And your brain is so vast and it's so important and it's so complex. Your brain is like a field of dirt. That's not what you thought I was going to say, is it? <laughs> but we're going to look at it like this. It's a really amazing and complex field of dirt, your brain is. See, God, he made Adam out of what? The dirt, right? And so it's no coincidence that dirt is where we plant seeds and it's where we grow crops. Everything, every plant in the world is growing in the dirt, except a couple that grow in the ocean and water and stuff. But basically, plants grow in the dirt. And in our brains, we have plants growing too. In fact, you know, anything will grow in dirt given the right circumstances, whether it's a good plant or a bad plant. Whatever you sow, whatever you sow or plant. By the way, why should you never tell a secret on a farm? Because the potatoes have eyes and the corn has ears. Why do farmers make crops? Or, yeah, what do farmers use to make crop circles? A protractor. <laughs> and what did the baby corn say to the mama corn? Where's popcorn? We're all farmers, all right? And I love making fun of farmers. But sorry if you're a farmer. We're all farmers, and we're all sowing something. Every moment of the day, you are throwing seeds into the open field of your mind. We're sowing seeds. Everything you read and see and meditate upon, it's all seeds. And they're just being tossed into the dirt. Some of them are going to grow and some of them are not. But when you plant a seed, you're trusting, if it's a good one, you're trusting that it is going to grow and you're preparing to wait for that to grow. You're going to say, I'm going to study now, maybe some truth. I'm going to go to school so that when I grow up, I'll have the reservoir of information or that will grow up into a crop of intelligence for me or, or I'll be able to handle whatever situations in life I'll be presented with. But you can't see how the seed starts to grow when it's hidden in the ground. You have to wait for the fruit you want to enjoy. It will eventually become clear what crop is sown. And that's exactly how 
advertising works. And advertising really works. Did you know that the NFL gets over $6 billion a year in just advertising money? $6 billion a year. That means people pay $6 billion to show their commercials during just the few hours a week that an NFL game is on. Why would they throw all that money unless they knew that it worked? Those commercials are planting seeds. They're planting seeds. Drink my beer, buy my insurance, use my credit card, whatever their commercial, whatever their deal is. Those seeds are planted and they'll come up at some point. And we've studied how Satan attacks us by lies, right? And we, that's why we wear the belt of truth. That's why we, we put that on every day. We spend time in the word of God so that we just have a natural knowledge of truth and the lies of the enemy will be seen as lies. We'll be like, that's a lie. I can't walk around believing that because I got the belt of truth on and I've been doing that every day. I've been putting on my belt, reading my Bible. We've seen how he attacks our emotions, and so God gave us a breastplate of righteousness to protect us from those emotional attacks where, God, where Satan says, you're not good enough. You should feel sorry about what you did. You are a terrible person and God is angry with you. And Jesus' righteousness protects us from that. Going to God and say, I confess my unrighteousness and I accept Jesus' righteousness. So confession is the way we put on that breastplate of righteousness. Then we saw that Satan tries to scare us off. He says, fine, if I, can't, if I can't deceive you and if I can't make you emotionally down and depressed and, and just despondent, then I'm going to scare you off. And we studied the life of Gideon and we studied how when we're with the Lord, when we understand that we have peace with the Lord and we're united with him, that it protects us. It gives us those boots of solid footing where we're not being scared off by the enemy. We're, willing, we're able to stand when we're standing with the Lord. Then, last week, we learned how he urges, or Satan uses the tough circumstances in our lives to tempt us to sin. So then Satan says, all right, well, I can't do any of these things to you. So when God brings a tough situation into your life, some of his molding, some of his fires to purify his precious gold, which you are, when God does that, I'm going to come along and I'm going to say, God's mad at you. God's angry with you. Why don't you sin? And we looked at the life of Job and we saw how Job didn't do that. Job trusted the Lord. He knew it. So we learned about that. Now, today, we're looking about how Satan can turn our minds against us. He can turn our minds against us. He confuses us. He lulls us into numbness. And then he plants the seeds of rebellion in our brain. And then he just laughs as those plants grow up and bear their terrible fruit of destruction in our lives. That's what Satan's doing. He just wants to throw some seeds. He doesn't care what sticks. He's just going to throw some over here and he's going to throw some over there. He's going to constantly bombard your brain and hope that he can at least affect your brain. If he can't affect your heart, if you're so in love with Jesus that he knows that you got his righteousness, he can't get in there, but he can still get it in your brain and he can affect your life because your brain has a huge effect on your life. 
So we plant these evil seeds as thoughts and images and ideas in our minds. He uses billboards and commercials and magazines and newspapers, TV shows, movies, songs, and radio stations, whatever we hear and consume, he's using. And his attacks are different for each person. He knows what gets you. You know, I wouldn't think by looking at it that Kurt might be tripped up by the hip-hop station. But Satan knows Kurt. He knows that he's down with the beats, and he may attempt to trip Kurt up by saying, listen to those beats. Listen to what they're saying. And, and Kurt might be like, no, but that's a good beat. I like that. That'd sound good in my car. But Satan knows what it is for you. He studies you. He knows what things you like, what your flesh really is attracted to. He knows what gets you. And he's so he's studying the fields of the brains out here. He doesn't see you as a bunch of people all attractive and dressed up for church on Sunday. He sees you as a bunch of brains, like fields, that he can just be putting his seed into. And he's willing to wait. He's willing to plant those seeds, and he's willing to wait and let those plants grow. In Galatians chapter 6, in the book to our left, chapter 6, verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So the seeds will grow. And you, can you can't fake what your field has been sowed with. No one looks at a cornfield and says, Oh, I can't wait for those strawberries to arrive. They're going to taste so good because you can't fake it. Your life will show what you have sowed. Your life will show what you have sowed. You have no chance to hide it. You can't hide what you've been putting in your mind. But some people try. Some people try, and they go through some different strategies. Some people are so embarrassed about what their life looks like, what their mind looks like, what their field looks like, that they're willing to lose relationships and, and, and get lost in their own worlds, and they just try to ignore their field by, by desensitizing and, and getting plugged into things that aren't relationships. They, they get obsessed with their video games, or they get obsessed with their computers, or their online worlds, or their TV, or their movies, or their books, anything to keep people from seeing what their mind is actually set upon. Some people try to drown the plants that have been growing in alcohol, but that doesn't work. In fact, that just plants more seeds in there. Some people try to keep it in the shadows, like, oh, don't look at those parts of my field. Some people try to use the pesticide of drugs, thinking, well, if maybe I can fix my mind by this prescription drug or non-prescription drug or recently legalized drug. Maybe that will fix what's wrong in my mind. Maybe. Some will just cry and weep with no hope. Some become despondent and defeated. But God does something else. None of those things are what God has for his children. God has something totally different, and it's called the helmet of salvation. 
God has given his children, all believers, something amazing and precious. David Guzak correlates for us uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, and it says, This speaks of the helmet of salvation in connection to the hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation protects us from discouragement against the desire to give up, giving us hope not only in knowing that we are saved, but that we will be saved. It is the assurance that God will triumph. Triumph. What God gives his people, what God gives you and me, what God gives, what God provides for his people is a sure victory. It's a sure victory. And I'm going to illustrate it like this. This is my illustration. It's like a lawnmower for the weeds of the flesh and the devil in your brain. That's what the helmet of salvation is for me. It's a lawnmower, but it's not just a normal lawnmower. Okay, this is a 1,000 horsepower, turbo, dual exhaust, solar and jet fueled, powered, triple titanium blade with air conditioning and a bobblehead of the Apostle Paul on the, the dash with a license plate that says saved and some dice in the mirror. That's what kind of mower this is, right? That's right. Tim the tool man would be proud. And it's ready to cut down all the weeds of sinful fruit in my mind. His salvation, his helmet of salvation is this lawnmower for my brain. That's my illustration. We could use Paul's, which is just a helmet. It might be more simple than mine, but I like mine. So the helmet of salvation, the word salvation is the Greek word soterios, from which we get the word soteriology. And I don't know if you've ever heard that word before. If you've gone to seminary or if you, if you hear that term, soteriology means the study of being saved or how you get saved or what salvation is, okay? And so basically there's three levels of meaning to the word soteriology or to soteriology. Or, or how we're saved. And basically, there's three ways Jesus saves us. Three ways that the helmet of salvation protects us and saves us from the corruption of our mind by Satan. Three ways. And it's really important that we get all three of these ways. First is justification. Second is sanctification. Third is glorification. Let me slow that down just a minute. Justification is being saved in position. Saved in position or saved from the penalty of sin. You are now seen as innocent when you believe in Jesus. You are innocent of all sin. The Father can look at you and say, you've never sinned. And he's not lying saying, or just ignoring what you've done. He actually can pronounce you innocent because the price has been paid for that sin. So justification is saved in position or saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, the second way that God saves us, he saves us in a practical day-to-day -day reality. We are saved from the power of sin. So justification saves us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, sa sanctification saves us from the power of sin in the day-to-day -day living of our life. We are not any longer under the power of sin. And then finally, glorification. We are saved completely from every effect and consequence of sin, both ours and others. And this would be saved from the presence of sin. So saved from the penalty, saved from the power, saved from the presence of sin. 
And that's how Jesus' salvation works. So you may have the most corrupt mind in the world. You may have had Satan just putting weed after weed after weed. And if someone were to see your field of your brain, it would just be a giant big field of Venus flytraps just killing things. That was horrible. But Jesus offers a new and fresh life. When you turn your mind away from all the bad seeds and to him, he offers a new and fresh life. So when you're saved, Jesus is a sure victory over sin. He's a sure victory or hope in all three areas. This is the really cool thing, is that it's not just justification where we're going to see salvation in our life, but it's justification, sanctification, and glorification where we're going to see his victory in our life. And we're going to look at that. So here's the, to summarize what putting on the helmet is. Putting on the helmet of salvation is the act of keeping your mind set on Jesus and experiencing his salvation or victory over sin. Putting your helmet on is setting your mind on Jesus and then just experiencing his salvation or his victory over sin. It's the hope of a, victori a victorious life becoming a reality by fixing your eyes on Jesus and nothing else. Just Jesus. That's it. People say, oh, I've tried Jesus and it doesn't work. Have you heard that? You ever said, hey, why don't you come to church this week? And they're like, oh, I've done that church thing. I've done that Jesus thing. And it, it didn't work for me. My heart then is to gently help them understand that they're wrong. They have not tried Jesus. Jesus isn't something that you can try. He's something you surrender to. He's a person that you surrender to your whole life. And Jesus, Jesus, he then promises to whoever surrenders to him, to whoever believes in him by faith, he surrenders to bring salvation to everyone who calls on his name in faith. He promises the salvation. So, did Jesus lie? If you tell me you've tried him and it didn't work for you, that means Jesus is a liar and I am not prepared to believe that. I don't think Jesus lies. I think Jesus is going to bring salvation into everyone who would surrender to him. Maybe, instead of Jesus being wrong, maybe you just didn't see the realities of salvation in your life. Maybe you didn't let the, the seeds that Jesus was planting in your heart grow to maturity. Maybe you just got impatient. Let's look at how these three realities of salvation work to protect and deliver our minds from the seeds the devil has been sowing there for all these years, some of us more than others. He's been sowing, he's still sowing in our minds. But let's see how Jesus just absolutely in three ways devastates that field of weeds. So again, justification means we're saved in position. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Basically, nothing Satan has sown in your life can keep you from your father. That's what that means. 
Nothing Satan has sowed in your life, in your mind, can keep you from your father. And you may say, but I have such wicked thoughts. And Jesus says, I don't care. Come to your father. But I, you don't understand how depraved I am. How much I doubt, how much sorrow I have, how much my mind strays to these other things. And Jesus says, it will not keep you from your father. I have made it so. My victory says so. It's in past tense. We have been justified by faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 3.28, I'm going to read a couple verses to you. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then in Romans 5.1, it says, having, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you believe in what Jesus has done on the cross and believe it was your personal sacrifice for all your sin, you have peace. You are blameless. You are forgiven, even if it doesn't look like it. This is the justification part. You are, you can burst in to God's presence and say, I am your child. And he says, yep, come on over here. The devil wants to corrupt your mind with so many thoughts of what you need to do to have peace with, with God. But God is already at peace with you if you believe in what his son did. If you have faith in what Jesus did, he's at peace with you. And the enemy's the one that's saying there's more to it than that. The father can't get mad at you when he already got mad at Jesus for you. One of the most beautiful sentences. The Father will not be mad at you when he already got mad at Jesus for you. He doesn't get mad about the same thing twice. That would be unrighteous of him, and he's not going to do that. As long as you maintain your faith, as you keep the faith, it's very important. And you will know you're still believing, still have faith, if your actions are lining up with what Jesus taught. That will be the natural fruit that grows in a life that is consistently remembering the salvation of justification. I'm forgiven and I'm at peace with you, so I will draw near to you. It doesn't matter what I just did. It doesn't matter what I was just involved with. I don't care. I believe, Jesus, that you paid for that sin. And so I will come into your presence. There is nothing that can keep you away from your Father. You have the right, like I said, to burst right into his throne room in heaven. And he wants you to. He literally wants you to. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through his flesh, that is, or through the veil, that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All the things that keep us away from our Father is like, oh, my conscience says I did bad things. And Jesus says, I don't care about that. I washed that clean. And my body even, I, did you see what I just partook in, what I just was involved with? And God's like, I don't care. You believe in Jesus, so come into my presence. You've been washed clean. Every bit of you, your body, your conscience, your mind. He wants us to draw near 
That's what the salvation of justification brings us. The ability to just draw near. Then there's the salvation of sanctification. The, the practical day-to-day -day reality saved from the power of sin. The power of sin. See, the penalty of sin, the justification part, he saves us from that. There's no more penalty. What's the penalty of sin? Separation from God. We have no separation from God. We burst right into his presence. Done. We're saved from that. Now we're saved from the power of sin. So nothing Satan has sown in your life can dominate you in this life. Nothing Satan has sown in your mind can dominate your mind when you believe in Jesus. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need to take out the lawnmower of, the, of salvation and see some sanctification up in here. When Satan plants all these worldly thoughts in our minds, and we, we are to renew what is in our minds, it renews it. It chops them down and something new comes up. We need to be transformed by what's in our minds and not simply conformed. There's no conforming. We can't do behavior modification in our brains. And that's what so much of psychology wants to teach you and wants to get communicated to you is that your mind is this big thing and you can cultivate the weeds to look pretty. And it doesn't matter that they're sinful. You can just, you can sculpt them this way. And if you work hard enough, you can fix your brain. And God says, just be, instead of trying to conform it, just transform it. Just transform it. Just let it be something completely different than what it was before. Well, how in the world do I just transform it? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus will transform your mind. I'll read the full verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, it says, look at him, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Wow. Get your eyes on Jesus. Get your mind on Jesus. Read the Bible. Listen to worship music. Just sit and think about him. Never stop. That's what the Christian life is. It's just Jesus filling us up. Never stop. And did you see what will happen then? He says, lest you become weary or discouraged in your souls. When someone comes up to me and they say, I'm so weary and I'm so discouraged. In my pastor brain, a, a trigger clicks. And that trigger says, you need more Jesus. You need to get your mind on Jesus. Oh, but I got so many things filling up my mind. And I say, well... The Bible says, take every thought captive unto Christ. So stop thinking about those things and think about Jesus. And they're like, oh, but you don't understand. And I say, 
I know I don't understand. But the Bible says, get your mind on Jesus. Consider him. Consider him. Look under him. Well, what parts of him? How about that he died on the cross? How he endured all that suffering from men and how he's glorified up in heaven? Consider him. Think about him. Talk to him. It will transform your mind. Literally, looking at Jesus is the cure for being weary and discouraged. I just cured depression. Just kidding. <laughs> All of the world, if they did this, I guarantee the long-term effects would be a balanced mind. A balanced mind. Someone who's got their mind on Jesus, their eyes on Jesus, he transforms it. He's planting good seeds. Literally, looking at Jesus, believing in him, will teach our brains how to work properly. What? Yeah, and the Bible even says that. Look at, at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. This is a vitally important verse for us. It says, For the grace of God that brings, what? Salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us. What's teaching us? Trying hard? No, the grace of God that brings salvation. That grace is what? It's teaching us. What's it teaching us? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for, what? What are we looking for? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace teaches us how to produce good fruit, how to live in this life while we wait for, he says here, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, which we've seen is the glorification. The justification, we're saved in position. The sanctification, we're saved in this practical day-by-day -day thing. And and the grace that we're receiving day by day as we look at Jesus, as we focus on Jesus, as we think of nothing else but Jesus, he gives grace into our lives. As we humbly with faith relate to Jesus, he gives this grace into our lives, and that grace then teaches us how to live godly, righteously, and soberly in this present world. It doesn't work the other way around. We don't get saved in position and then live godly, and then God gives us sanctification. No. God gives his grace first. And that grace teaches us. It's funny that grace is the opposite of the law because people will use the law all the time. People will use the law, oh, I haven't been living by the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you haven't. Neither have I. No one does. And they'll get all bummed out and, and they'll be like, I got to try harder to keep these Ten Commandments. But do the Ten Commandments teach us how to live godly? No, it says in the Bible. Only grace will. Because it's not about teaching your brain, it's about equipping your soul. And that's what grace has that the law does not have. A spirit, the Holy Spirit, to make you holy. So, 
We then are able to walk in freedom and victory from the power of sin in our lives. We will not be dominated by sin. As Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If you're under the law, sin is going to rule your life. Because the law is based on your performance to the law. Grace frees us from the law and enables us to actually live righteously and godly in this present age. It's a beautiful way that God works. Your mind might say, I need to sin. But Jesus will break that chain and set you free by his grace just by keeping your eyes fixed on him, keeping your heart fixed on him. I was just talking to someone before service about um, someone who's an alcoholic and, and they wanted to go to AA to be freed from that al alcoholism. And, and this is a common thing that I see is that, oh, they, they think AA, the 10 steps, 12, is it 10 or 12? Who's, don't raise your hand. But if, you, if you've been there, it's, it's a certain amount. I don't know, 12 steps? 12? Okay. So you got your 12 steps. And I, I bet it's just so depressing when you get through three steps and then you mess up again. Or you get through 10. What if you keep all 12 and then you mess up again? Like, with Jesus, it's so different than that. And there's this ministry over at Calvary Aurora and many churches around town, but I'm familiar with the one over there called The Most Excellent Way. And for people dealing with addictions and for people struggling with a, a sin that is dominating their life, they have a more excellent way that's called the most excellent way. What do you think that is? Jesus. His grace. There's one step. One step. There's another ministry called One Step Ministry. It's a great one too. What do you think that step is? You surrender to Jesus. You keep your mind fixed on him. Your mind says, I want to drink. Your heart and your brain say, no, I'm going to focus on Jesus and see what happens. And Jesus will free you. He frees people. He's really good at it. So now, so now, we fix our eyes on him, and what happens is, for, is Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So this sanctification thing, it's amazing. The grace working in our lives to create righteousness in us, Jesus says, I will complete it. Paul says, I'm confident of it. Who is confident that they can keep all the Ten Commandments for the rest of their life? No one. But we can be confident in grace. Who's confident that they'll never drink again if they were an alcoholic? No one. But grace gives us confidence that it will continue to work we will continue to have salvation and victory until what? Until the day of Jesus Christ, which is our third way that Jesus brings victory, and that is glorification. When we're saved completely from every effect and consequence of sin, or saved from the presence of sin. We're saved from the... Uh, justification saves us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification saves us from the power of sin in our daily lives. And now, glorification saves us from the presence of sin. So now we have confidence. And nothing Satan does or is sown in your life will be with you forever. That's what this means. 
Nothing you've seen, nothing you've experienced will be with you forever if it's from Satan. Those plants will be mowed down. And Satan will try to discourage you. He'll try anything and everything to get you to not think about eternity. He's tried to fill our minds with so many distractions, all simply designed to keep you from thinking about your future life and the victory that you have with Jesus. Turn with me to Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, we have this wonderful psalm uh, written to us that really talks about this very topic. We're going to read the whole psalm here. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so the psalmist here, Asaph, he is in our position, but he's, he's looking at this, and he, he, he's looking, he needs to understand the glorification part of salvation. How is God going to save me when it comes to eternity? Because he's looking around, and he sees all the wicked people, and they're not suffering. They're not suffering for the bad they've done, and he's kind of upset about this. He's like, why do they have a good life, and I don't? For there, he says, verse um, 4, for there are no pangs in their death, and, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance, and they have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression, and they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and they taught their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people Return. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastised every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children when I thought how to understand this. I was, it was too painful for me until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment, and they are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakens. So, the Lord, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory, glorification. Whom have I, have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who, who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I will, will declare all 
your works. So putting on the helmet of salvation is the act of keeping your mind set on Jesus and then just experiencing his salvation or victory over sin. Nothing Satan has sown in your life can keep you from your father. You have victory. Nothing Satan has sown in your life can dominate you in this life. You have victory. Nothing Satan does or has sown in your life will be with you forever. You have victory. But you might not be seeing that victory yet. You can't see how the seed starts to grow when it's hidden in the ground, can you? You have to wait for that fruit that you want to enjoy. But it will eventually be clear what crop was sown in your field. If you sow to the flesh, the results will be a corrupted, mangled, messed up field of weeds. You wanted maybe to spiritually accomplish something, but you tried to do it in your flesh and by your own strength and your own resources, and the results will be a failure. If it's not done in the Spirit, glorifying Jesus with your mind on Jesus and, and his grace, then it's not done. It is not going to be a good crop. It, there may be, maybe you've succeeded in some behavior modification, but the fruit cannot be hidden forever. You're going to try to go to battle against Satan without your helmet. And every good soldier knows they don't go to battle without their helmet. They got to put on that helmet, which is the act of keeping their mind set on Jesus and experiencing his salvation through that. We're going to end on Ephesians 2.8, back in our book of Ephesians. And we've already studied 2.8, but it's worth going back and seeing how it relates to this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So as we've looked at these three ways that God saves us today, in justification, in sanctification, and in glorification, the past, the present, and the future, understand that each one of them is by grace, it says. Each one of them is a gift. And that's why we know that we can have a mind that works. We can have a mind that glorifies God because we can put this helmet on. This helmet is a gift offered to you. And you put it on by faith. How? By keeping your mind on Jesus. By keeping your eyes fixed upon him. And you will experience his salvation and victory in every area of your life, both past, present, and future. It will be done. Because Jesus doesn't lie. He just offers. He offers salvation to anyone who'll take it. So let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And let's Speak to the Lord about this for just a minute. Jesus, you have made such wonderful, gracious offers to us that we would be children of the Most High God and welcomed into your family. But the offer that we consider here today is your salvation. And if it's the first time that you're hearing about this salvation and it's just blowing your mind that Jesus would wipe away every sin that you've ever committed 
if you would just ask him. And you would just believe what he said and what he did on the cross. Then I invite you to receive that salvation by asking and saying, Father, please give me that salvation. Please save me. And like Peter, when he was sinking, Jesus' hand will reach down and will pull you up and you will be forgiven in a moment, faster than anything you can imagine. But if you have known Jesus for a while, and if you have been struggling with sin, there's a prayer that is exactly the same that works for you as well. Jesus, save me. And he will reach out his hand, and he will give you the salvation of sanctification. He will give you freedom from the dominating effects of sin in your life. And each one of us looks forward to the day when we'll see the glory that God has in store for us, where we, we will be completely separated from any kind of sin or consequences thereof. And Jesus, we call upon your name in faith for victory for salvation, God, because we have no other name to call. We cannot call upon the name of psychology to free our minds. We cannot call upon the name of our government to save us today. They have no strength to save us from what we're in. We cannot call upon the name of Muhammad. We cannot call upon the name of Buddha. And we cannot call upon the name of anyone else. For they do not have the power to save, nor the willingness to save that you do. We call upon Jesus Christ, who bled and died and was resurrected and living at the throne of God. For our salvation for our daily life, our daily salvation that we need as we go to our jobs and as we minister to our families and as we serve our children and our parents and as we suffer in this life, we need to be saved. We need to experience the salvation of sanctification. We need to live a godly life that glorifies you in every way. We turn away our eyes from evil things and we live to glorify you, our God. We turn to you, Jesus, and we trust in you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.